HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome food writer J. Kenji Lopez-Alt. In today's episode, we'll talk to Kenji about how he takes cooking seriously, his new cookbook, the walk. And we'll hear Kenji's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia was well acquainted with the desire to know everything about cooking. The process to develop Mastering the Art of French Cooking, written with Simone Beck and Louisette Bertolle, was not only long, it was exhaustive. The reason? Julia wanted to be able to explain the how and the why behind the alchemy of French food. She felt strongly that for recipes to work for American home cooks, who may not have made them before, been to a French restaurant, let alone France, they would have to be very clearly explained. This was incredibly important to Julia because it was also the way her mind worked. She needed a comprehensive understanding of the ins and outs of cooking to feel like she could master it. She was also a self-described gadget freak, relishing any device that expanded her skills. Someone who shares Julia's thorough approach to understanding cooking and a passion to teach their discoveries is food writer, cookbook author, and YouTuber J. Kenji Lopez-Alt. Kenji's built a career on the how and the why, the science behind cooking, 
all in a quest to help. Like Julia, he's found unintended success teaching on camera from his home kitchen, YouTube replacing public television, as the medium. Valuing independence and that fans can rely on his recommendations, like Julia, he eschews endorsements or brand partnerships, even as his Kenji's cooking show has surpassed a million subscribers. While an MIT-trained architect, Kenji preferred working in Boston kitchens, including Julia mentee Barbara Lynch's, before gaining a loyal following writing about the how and why of cooking for Cooks Illustrated and Serious Eats, where he remains its chief culinary advisor. Now also a New York Times columnist, in addition to his YouTube show, Kenji was formerly the chef at Verst Hall in San Mateo, California. His much-anticipated second cookbook, The Walk, Recipes and Techniques, is out now. Not nearly as comprehensive as his 1,000-page multi-award-winning and best-selling The Food Lab, Better Home Cooking Through Science, The Walk is only a mere 650-plus pages, covering everything you would want to know and more about walk cooking. If you were wondering about Kenji's unique name, he was raised by a Japanese mother and German-American father in New York City's Morningside Heights, and combined last names when he married his wife, who's from Columbia. He is a self-proclaimed stay-at-home dad, so I'm betting he'd want me to mention he is also the author of the children's book, Every Night is Pizza Night. He and his wife, two children, and two dogs live in Seattle. Kenji joins us today to share how he takes cooking seriously, and to talk about his latest cookbook, The Walk, Recipes and Techniques. Welcome to the podcast, Kenji. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm looking forward to talking to you. I'm, I'm curious about kind of your philosophy on cooking a- after you've been writing about it for so many years, and then, then we'll talk <laughs> about this, this big book, which, it, which surprised me in, in, in many ways, and, and I think has been much anticipated by um, the, the marketplace. But let's start kind of a much bigger picture. And I was just curious, okay. especially I mentioned like your background, like you didn't start out as someone who's like, I'm going to be a food writer. And so I was curious, <laughs> you, right? You know, you went to MIT, you trained, you trained in, I think, biology and then architecture. And so I was curious, do you remember like an aha moment? And as mm-hmm. Julia would say, you know, you, when you became tremendously interested in food, was there a time when just a switch was flipped or, or how, do, how do you think about it? <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it was it was actually when I got my first professional <laughs> cooking job because, um, you know, I... I I literally fell into cooking accidentally. Um, I was looking for a job. Uh, so the summer after my sophomore year of college, I was looking for a job um, just to sort of make some money while I was trying to figure out what to do with my life because I was changing. Ma- I decided not to be a biology major, but I did- wasn't really sure what I wanted to study yet. Uh, so I decided to take that summer off from any kind of ac- academic work. Um, and uh, so I was looking for a job as a server at a bunch of restaurants in Cambridge and um <clears throat> just you know one of the restaurants i went to uh told me that they needed a prep cook that could st- and if i could start that day that um i could have a job for the summer uh and so i yeah i took a job with as a test cook without uh as a prep cook without ever having <laughs> really cooked much before in my life you know i i cooked a little bit at home because i you know because i grew up watching public television um and you know i would say i was sort of equally into like the painting shows and the cooking shows on public television. Um, so done a very, very tiny bit of cooking in the past, but, but had never really, uh, done any kind of cooking, uh, up until I got that job. But 
I fell in love with restaurant kitchens um, and sort of the the workflow of a restaurant and the the daily um, tasks uh, of cooking uh, right pretty much immediately when I started working there. Um, so it, you know it wasn't a great restaurant, but but the um, but the, the the way the kitchen is run and sort of the idea of hospitality and um, doing something with your hands that's creative but also um, you know brings other people uh, sort of joy that that was really what I fell in love with. And that's interesting because that, I think, is a common refrain for chefs, but you've really, you, you know, sort of found your niche as, as a writer and teacher more than a restaurant mm-hmm. chef, even though you've done that. So when did that evolve into like, hey, maybe I should be a food writer? <laughs> um, it, it was it was a, a gradual change. You know, for, for me, it was much more of a a thing where I had been cooking in restaurants for a while and, um, and I wasn't sure that I wanted that to be sort of my, you know, my, my, my life's goal. I, like I never had the, the, the goal of becoming a, you know, a capital C chef with a restaurant or a series of restaurants or anything like that. Um, I enjoyed the cooking, but it was really much more sort of the, yeah, the whole process of cooking as opposed to the actual, um, ins and outs of a, of running a restaurant that I was, um, interested in, but, you know, after a few years of working in restaurants. And so I kind of transitioned from, uh, the restaurant world into the, um, test kitchen world. Um, I got a job at Cooks Illustrated, uh, where I started testing recipes and writing. Um, and that's sort of where I really, I think found my, my niche where, um, I got to combine my love of science, uh, with, uh, with my love of cooking and sort of my love of, of, writing and teaching. And, um, yeah, it's all kind of evolved from there. Uh, you know, in, in the long run, it's like, I, I'm, I'm not even sure that if, you know, if, if my, if my life had gone a slightly different way, you know, if I hadn't walked into that one specific restaurant and I never became a cook, um, I, you know, I do often think about like, Oh, what would I be doing now? Um, and I think I, I would probably not be cooking, but I would still be writing and teaching, you know, whether it was about, whatever it is, woodworking or painting or what, you know, whatever I ended up, um, sort of falling, fall, whatever sort of career path I ended up falling into, I think it would have eventually landed on what I'm doing now, which is what I, what I really enjoy. I can completely understand that. I mean, I went to college and I was studying Japanese and then I ended up switching to architecture and now I work in film and television and food. So Mm -hmm. I (laughs) totally get that. And I think actually that explanation of moving from the kitchen with Cooks Illustrated being this, you know, obviously a publication and a media entity that's talking about food, but, you know, you have to explain it. That makes sense as a, a natural bridge. And I think Cooks Illustrated, certainly, and then what you did at Series Seeds was really about breaking down, like, why things happened and how you could do to get this effect or that effect, which, mm-hmm. you know, kind of became your reputation about discovering, searching for, writing about the optimal ways to get food exactly right or exactly the way you want it. And I think that's mm-hmm. interesting because Julia was very passionate about technique. You know, she certainly mm-hmm. thought you needed to know what you were doing before you started improvising. But then, of course, she's quite famous for really empowering people to make mistakes. And I was curious, right. how, how do you reconcile those two philosophies of like optimization, but also you got to <laughs> screw up? Are, are they compatible? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think so. You know, when when people say optimization, um, or you know, when when I, when I in one of my recipes, which I, you know these days I try not to use the word best or ultimate or anything like that. Um, um, I did that a lot, sort of when I was at Serious Eats, um, and also at Cooks Illustrated because that sort of is 
I don't know how you how you sell how you get the clicks and how you sell an article. You know, it's a headline thing. Um, but usually, when I use that word, what I really meant was, you know, I'm going to be exploring every single possible variable in this particular recipe. And the the recipe, you know, the the dish that I arrive at at the end, whether it's sort of you know the best chocolate chip cookie or the best lasagna or whatever, that's sort of incidental to that, you know, and that's a very particular description of the best. Your idea of the best might be something very different, but. Um, I'm going to be sort of testing all the things that allow you to uh, then, you know, convert this recipe into whatever you want it to be. Um, and so in, the, in that sense, I don't think those ideas are very um, incompatible at all. You know, the way, so the way I think about it and what, what I wrote in the, in the, at the beginning of the walk is that, um, you know, to me, a single recipe uh, is like uh, turn-by-turn directions where, where you, can, you can take your phone and ask it to take you. Uh, from your house to the post office, right? And you can and you can just stare at your phone the whole time while you're walking without ever looking up around you and get to the post office. And if your only goal is to get to the post office, that's fine. Um, but if you want to be able to get to the store next to the post office or or, under, or maybe take a different route, you know, say there's construction one day and you can't take that route, um, what you really want is a map. And a map is sort of, is, is kind of what like technique uh, and understanding food science is where um, you can still follow along the recipe and get from point A to point B, but you also see all these sort of diverging pathways you can take and, and ways you can get to a different uh, end destination or, or a different route to, to get to the same end destination. Um, and so in that sense, you know, when if, if you want to improvise in the kitchen, um, you first of all have to not be afraid to get lost a little bit and be afraid to make a, a couple of mistakes. Um, and and the, I think the best way to do that is to have the confidence um, to know that even if you make a little mistake or if you chain, if you can't find the right ingredient or something, that you're still going to be able to get somewhere uh, delicious. And I think understanding technique is what allows you to do that, what gives you that confidence. So, so for me, you know, understanding technique and food science is really sort of an empowering thing in the kitchen where um, it allows you to feel free to improvise and feel, feel okay making mistakes, knowing that um, you're still going to be able to arrive to something um, good at the end. Yeah, and I was going to say, I my feeling is people who know really talented chefs are really great home cooks. If they really, they often just know the end product, like what gets served to them and wow them. They're not watching what goes on. And I think in my career, what I feel like I've learned is the best chefs and home cooks, it's not that they don't make mistakes. They know how to pivot or adjust or correct them. Do you agree with that? And I think that kind of fits into your map idea. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree with that. Um, and I think, you know, pub, public television, especially, you know, older cooking shows and even some of the sort of the early Food Network shows, but a show like Julia's, right, where there's just a camera or maybe a couple cameras and she's cooking everything start to finish in her home and there's no fancy editing. There's no there's no backups. There's no like, look at this one that I already made and, you know, switch to camera B. Let's pull out pull it out from the kitchen in the back. Um, you know, you, you see her making mistakes along the way. Um, and I feel like, um, you know, in, in the same way that, say, you know, Bob, Bob Ross with his with his painting show, everything is a happy little accident, right? You see him start to finish painting something. And I think those shows are really sort of what um, inspire my current philosophy, which is that, um, yeah, even if, if you... Even experts make mistakes and even professionals make mistakes and it's actually good for home cooks and people getting into it to see that happening so that they understand, hey, you know what, it, it is okay to make mistakes and even, yeah, even people have been doing this for, for years um, make those mistakes. And presumably you make some mistakes on your YouTube show and, and correct Oh, all them. the time. <laughs> <laughs> all the time, you know, because I'm cooking in a, um, I'm cooking in my home kitchen and yeah, you know, there's, there's. 
a baby and a five-year-old in the house and two dogs and um, and my wife. And so, so the kitchen is always not exactly perfectly set up the way I want it to be, you know, the way like a restaurant kitchen would be or the way, uh, you know, I've worked on TV shows, cooking shows, and this, the set kitchens are always set up exactly how they're supposed to be. And you have all the exact right tools. Um, and there's all these sort of redundancies to make sure that if any mistakes happen while the camera's running, you can you can pick it up again with another camera or, or you have a backup and whatever. So none of those things, I don't have any of those things that like I'm literally just sticking a camera on my head. Sometimes I'll have a second or third camera, but they're all running simultaneously. And I, I essentially, um, yeah, I, I really do think of it the way I think of like a, you know, a 30 minute long old school stand and stir cooking show where uh, I'm doing everything from start to finish and talking while I'm doing it. Um, and, you know, and I know that there's not going to be any cuts or any opportunities to sort of swap things out. So I really, I really think of it that way um, and think to myself constantly, like, you know, just, just roll with it. Like if you make a mistake, totally fine. Just, you know, explain what the mistake was, explain how you're trying to recover from it um, and go with it. And I think that's a, um, you know, more useful thing than, um, you know, one of these two minute long hands only everything, all the food always comes out perfect uh, videos that you see a lot of these days. Yeah, not not having a beat the clock thing gives you gives you probably I think that's one of the hardest things about TV, particularly segments on on, on morning shows and things that I'm sure you're probably oh, yeah. about to tackle, right? <laughs> you're on this clock. And so yes, while everything's prepped, like, you know, that's also why cooking challenge shows are, are so effective, because the hardest thing to do is make things happen within a set time, because cooking right right right, right. so at least you, you i assume you give yourself a certain freedom it takes as long as it takes you don't have a or do you do you cut things down well oh no i don't cut things down um but i i do you know i i, I so the, the the types of recipes i do on my youtube channel are they really are just whatever i happen to be cooking that day for for lunch or dinner you know like my basic rule is um, I'm not going to go out of my way to make something special just for the channel. Um, I want it to be real. Uh, and so, and, you know, and, and then the other, the only other rule is that um, my family, you know, my family is very private. Like I, I try and keep some of my, my children out of all the videos. My wife doesn't like being in the video. So, um, so it's, if, you know, if my family is home, um, I'm going to shut off the camera if they come through. But generally I, I only shoot when they're not home or, or when they're up, occupied with something else. Um, but all the recipes I'm cooking in it are things that I'm like, literally cooking right there for dinner so my only time restrictions are like all right i got a family to feed <laughs> they're um, hungry so they're, people they're, they're, they're the, the real you know realistic ones <laughs> yeah so i there's a profile of you in gq magazine recently and it describes you as having spent you know a decade and a half influencing and changing how america cooks and thinks about food which incidentally <laughs> is part of the description for joyous child award recipients and I was thinking, you know, influence is quite helpful when you're trying to foster societal change. That's what Julia tried to do. But it can also, as happened to Julia, bleed into idolatry. And I was curious, would you rather be seen or referred to as a teacher or an influencer? Oh, a, a teacher, for sure. <laughs> um, uh, I don't, you know, I, I've got ideas about... <laughs> Um, about societal change and what I think, what I think could make the world a better place. But I'm also, I also know that I'm not, um, I'm not the most qualified person to make those decisions. Um, I mean, I, I do think nobody's really qualified to make those decisions, but, um, you know, it, it is nice to have influence in some, in some ways. Um, but it's also a lot more, um, it's a lot more, you know, responsibility than I think, um, I necessarily want I, I yeah I, I would much rather be known as a as a teacher than a than a uh, an influencer 
Fair enough. Makes a lot of sense. Influencer comes with a lot of, yeah, with a lot more responsibility than I think a lot of influencers are um, aware of as they're like signing up to work with brands and things like that. Right. It's, I mean, it's, it's also a very strange world these days because, um, you know, be, be, because of the way social media works and the internet works, um, just the sort of the, the development of these parasocial relationships where, um, you know, people feel like they have an insight, insight into who you are and they, they feel that they know you personally, um, because they follow your work. Um, it's, it's a very, it's a very strange world and a very strange feeling, um, to, to, to have that. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I think even, and I, I think it's going to get even stranger as, as, um, as sort of these the, the way we interact and the and the internet and the social interactions that we have um, with, uh, with you know re- remote social interactions that you have with people um, increase. It's it's only going to get stranger. Well, yeah, the barrier between what is public and private is really reduced with social, like as you said, you're you're videotaping in your home kitchen, and even though Julia did that a long time ago toward the end of her career, it was harder to access her. And, you know, certainly people marvel that Julia used to answer the phone and her phone number was was listed. But I think she was also, I don't know, there wasn't a culture of haters either. I don't think anyone called Julia up and <laughs> criticized her. They only called her up in, in sort of fandom. That's a good question. But I've never heard that there was any negative thing. And obviously with DMs and things like that and comments, people feel really, you know, the anonymity to say whatever on their mind, which may have to do with their mood and not even the person they're, they're commenting on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Julia, I, I'd be curious to know what Julia would have thought if there had been, you know, live commenting on her, on her PBS shows, <laughs> and, and how that would have changed her relationship. I don't know how many people know this, but actually Julia was very, while she was a gadget freak and loved new devices and things like that, she was very skeptical of the internet. And mm-hmm. and it was for exactly that reason. She didn't get sort of the parameters and how it was going to work and was concerned about that level of kind of proximity and immediacy. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and, it, you know, she died in the very early days of, you know, AOL time, but um, right. that that was definitely, you know, when people used to or often ask about her opinion about Julie and Julia, the movie and Julie um, Powell, it, it had to do with that. She wasn't like blogging was not part of her worldview and she wasn't, I think, hadn't quite gotten her head around. Like, what is that? Right. And why is someone blogging about me instead of themselves? Right, right, right. And well, and it's also moving so fast that by the time you have your head wrapped around blogging, we're already at the next, you know, the next level of social interaction. Um, yes, no, I'm still like explaining to my teenage daughter, like the difference between Instagram and TikTok and that they're all public broadcast systems. And, and I yeah, think that's yeah. a little <laughs> right lost on kids. The different, you know, the, the difference between talking to my friend on this device and that I'm also talking to the entire world at the same time. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, fi- I think I finally reached my, you know, my, my, <laughs> like my, my old man phase where I'm like, what is this new stuff? Like when, when TikTok <laughs> came out, I was like, what is this? Like, we don't need any more interaction than Instagram. You know what? <laughs> This music is so loud. (laughs) All right, we're going to take a break, and we're going to come back to talk about walk cooking with food writer J. Kenji Lopez-Alt. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin... 
you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Hey everyone, I'm Jesse Sparks, host of the new podcast, The One Recipe, from the team behind The Splendid Table. This pod is all about that one recipe that you lean on. The one you share with friends, the one you make when you need a little love, and the one you know will work every single time. Every week, I talk with chefs and gifted cooks from all over the world about their one, and the story behind it. We're here to help you build your kitchen library one dish at a time. Follow The One Recipe wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. We're talking to the award-winning author, J. Kenji Lopez-Alt, about his new cookbook, The Walk, Recipes and Techniques. So, Kenji, I have to say, I made a misguided assumption when I heard the book's title and was like, oh, this is a book about Chinese food because it's about a walk. But it's really about mastering a versatile kitchen tool. So how do you describe what the book is and, and who is it written for? Yeah, well, it's, you know, similar to my first book, it's a, it, it is really a technique-based book. Um, however, um, it is a lot more personal than the first book because, the, you know, the wok is the tool that I use by far the most in the kitchen and the pan that I use by far the most in the kitchen. And it, and it has been um, basically since I started, you know, since I bought my first wok 20-something years ago. And it was also the tool that my, you know, my mom used it a lot in the kitchen. My, my mom is Japanese. And even though, you know, woks are originally Chinese, they, of course, have made their way all around Asia. Um, and so it, it's something that, you know, the recipes in this book are, th some of them are things that I grew up with. Um, some of them are things that I've sort of come to love. Um, but yeah, it, it really is a book that's aimed at, um, aimed much more in a, in a, uh, in a, it's, it's a much more practical book than my first one, I think. Um, because, uh, well, you know, virtually every single recipe in the book can be cooked 100% in a wok, um, a single pan, you know, a $40 pan that just sits on your stovetop. I think there's only one recipe in the book that calls for even preheating the oven. Um, and, uh, and most of them are very fast because, um, well, because just as a sort of very generalized rule, um, a lot of, uh, wok recipes that are cooked in a wok and a lot of sort of East Asian recipes tend to be faster than, um, say, you know, Western European or particularly sort of French recipes. Um, <clears throat> you know, a, a lot of them, so the way I, I tend to think about it, and, and again, this is in a very generalized way, but the way I tend to think about it a lot is that, um, with, um, you know, Western European recipes, a lot of the flavor development comes from sort of long simmering or slow braising or reducing or um, searing and developing these brown flavors out of sort of fresh ingredients. Um, whereas with a lot of uh, East Asian recipes, um, 
a lot of the flavors of that umami depth and the complexity comes from using very fragrant aromatics. So a lot of spices and a lot of, um, a lot of fresh aromatics. Um, and then in particular using a lot of sort of fermented sauces. So you think of, you know, soy sauce and fish sauce and bean paste and miso and all, all these really long fermented sauces that the sort of the work of developing those umami flavors and the depth and complexity, a lot of it has already been done for you. So you can buy these sauces and then generally, you know, your vegetables or your protein or whatever it is you're cooking cooks very quickly uh, and you add flavor through the flavor through the use of aromatics and sauces. Um, so in general, you know, wok recipes tend to be much faster um, than uh, Western style recipes. So really, you know, it's a book for, it's a book for, so for, first of all, people who um, are interested in Asian cuisine in general, um, East Asian cuisine, and, you know, and they want to be able to sort of replicate some of the things they've had at restaurants, you know, so it could be for those people. Um, it's also sort of for, you know, people uh, who want to be able to cook quick I mean, it sounds like an infomercial, but people who want to be able to cook quick, healthy, easy meals with fresh vegetables and fresh meat and, you know, things like that. Um, uh, for me, it's like, so I got my first walk when I was uh, about 20 years old. So in, I, I think around 2000, maybe 2001, um, I bought it. Uh, I bought it at a Target in, in um, Somerville. Uh, but I, I, that same exact walk is the same walk. Like I cooked in it yesterday. I, co I cooked a meal in it yesterday. Um, and, uh, if, if you look at every single photo in the book, in the walk book, um, it's of that same, same exact walk that I've had for 20 something years now. Um, and so, you know, I've, I've cooked in it, I cooked in it when I was in college and I cooked in that same walk when I was, uh, living with roommates and having dinner parties and stuff. And I cooked in it, uh, when it was just me and my wife living in an apartment. Uh, and now I cook in it for my whole family. Um, so it's, it's just a very sort of versatile tool that I, I feel like once you, understand the techniques and how to cook in it properly um it's a really useful thing to do for, for virtually any sort of life situation that you're in now the book also details in kind of the beginning you know how to shop for a walk and which to pick did you luck mm -hmm. into buying what you described as probably the most versatile walk because <laughs> presumably you didn't have that research when you walked into target um, I, well, sort of, I sort of lucked into it. It also, it also, I mean, I, I suppose it, it was lucky that, you know, the, the most widespread and the, uh, and the most inexpensive style of walk happens to be the one that, um, I would recommend. Um, so in that sense, yeah, I mean, I bought that walk because it was, it was in front of me and it was cheap. Um, uh, but in general, you know, you, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be buying like a, a tri-ply stainless steel walk for, for $200. Um, it's not going to, in fact, it's going to do a lot of things worse than a, than a, than a thinner carbon steel walk is going to do. Um, uh, but yeah, I, re I recommend, uh, for pretty much anybody, I would recommend a carbon steel, uh, 14 inch flat bottom walk with a, with a gauge, with a thickness of at least around 1.5 millimeters. So 14 to 16 gauge, um, and uh, most inexpensive walks are actually going to, you know, fit into that category. The only other type of inexpensive walk that you might run into that um, you wouldn't want is a nonstick walk. Um, and, you know, and that said, if you already own a nonstick walk or you already own a stainless steel walk or whatever, you know, whatever walk you already own, um, the vast majority of things you're going to be able to do in that just fine. Um, the, the times where you run into trouble are dishes where you need, where you're really going for that wok hay flavor, that sort of smoky flavor that you get with say, you know, certain types of fried rice or, or ch chow fun or things like that. Um, and with those, you're not going to be able to use a nonstick wok because, um, because you have to heat them up too much. 
uh, and and the non nonstick coatings are not stable at those really high temperatures. Um, and and you'll have difficulty in a in a stainless steel wok because um, some of those flavors come directly from uh, the seasoning process, from the seasoning of whether it's you know carbon steel or cast iron. Um, the the metal itself gives gives the dish um, a flavor that you won't achieve with uh, stainless steel. But um, uh, you know, but, but like I said, you know, 95% of the recipes in the book, uh, you'll be able to do with pretty much any wok. Um, I just find carbon steel is the most sort of versatile and has, has good longevity. Uh, it, you know, it's, it'll, it'll last forever as long as you don't let it rust on you. Um, and it's the most inex inexpensive you're going to find. Super helpful. All right, let's switch from the technical to the personal. And we've already kind of talked about you you have these Cambridge connections like like Julia did, obviously a very different time period. But I wanted to ask you to describe who Joyce Chen is and how she helped you write this book. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, my introduction to Joyce Chen came before I really even knew who she was because my family so so Joyce Chen, um, she wrote a book called the you know, the Joyce Chen Cookbook. It was self published. It came out in the early sixties. Um and then um, and then it was republished uh, and distributed more widely in the 70s. Um, but she started a um a restaurant in Cambridge, uh in, in Cambridge, and um my, you know, and she was sort of the, the the person who first introduced a lot of northern Chinese specialties um, to the country. Um, so, you know, there, in in New York City, the early wave of Chinese immigrants, um, and in New York cities like New York, New York City and San Francisco, um, a lot of the food that you saw was influenced by Cantonese cuisine, so southern Chinese cuisine, um, and nor and. Um, Joyce Chen introduced northern style cuisine to, um, to uh, well, initially to Cambridge. So things like, um, you know. Um, hot and sour soup or pan fried dumplings, which, you know, she called picking ravioli, uh, things like that, or, you know, uh, double cooked pork belly, um, all these dishes that, uh, I think now are, you know, now are, people are very familiar with, um, you know, my, so my parents grew up with the, or sorry, I grew up with my parents cooking from the Joyce Chen cookbook. And I didn't really know that they were cooking out of this book until years later when my mom showed me the book, but you know, my dad loved Chinese food. Um, and so we would often have hot and sour soup. We would have, um, you know, my mom would make double cooked pork from those, from the cookbook. Um, so we had all these dishes, mapo tofu, uh, that, um, I grew up eating. And then years later I realized, oh, these all came from this one book that my mom had, um, that, you know, I, I found it in her kitchen, completely, you know, stained, covered in soy sauce stains. And, uh, I found it in her kitchen. And then I did a little more sort of research into who Joyce Chen was. Um, and it, it was really interesting sort of seeing this book and, and seeing all these recipes that I was very familiar with, um, both in sort of the form that my mom and my dad made, um, at home. And then also sort of in their more, um, you know, authentic Sichuanese form, because, uh, by the, by the time I had sort of discovered that book, um, Sichuan restaurants were very common in both, in both, uh, Boston and New York, um, and, and restaurants in particular doing sort of very, you know, much more sort of regional and authentic, um, Sichuan cuisine, um, which is different from what my parents cooked out of that, out of that book. Um, but, you know, uh, Joyce Chen, I'm, I'm, I, I don't know if, if Julia ever met her, but I assume, I would assume yes. Yeah, um, they li they correct. lived in the same city. They both yep. worked in public television. Um, Joyce Chen was the the first woman of color to um, have her own cooking show. Um, she had a couple of seasons of the Joyce Chen show. Um, she, you know, she did a lot. That, like the flat bottom, I recommend the flat bottom walk. Um, Joyce Chen was the original patent holder for flat bottom walks because she realized recognized that um, round bottom walks were not ideal for um, for uh, you know home cooks in the West. Um, she invented the polypropylene cutting board. She had her, she had a line of, um, you know, pre-bottled stir fry sauces. And I think she was the first person to ever think of doing that. So she was, you know, so she was a cook and an educator and a, 
uh, an inventor and a businesswoman. Um, and um, yeah, I, 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 it's difficult to say, you know, what her overall um, influence on the, on the world of, of cooking is, but it's, it's safe to say that it's, it's pretty vast. Yeah, I would say it's more significant than people realize. And I think you you left out, you know, she owned a restaurant, if not more than one. And that mm-hmm. I think you even wrote about like, she's one of the people who innovated, like having numbers on Chinese. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think one, one of the early issues with um, Chinese restaurants in the US was that um, people, you couldn't, you couldn't use traditional Chinese characters and translations were also difficult and somewhat strange. <laughs> um, and so she, um, yeah, she, she created this, this, this system that we're all familiar with now where you have like the number 13 or whatever, you know, numbering restaurant menu items so that you can order, uh, in a way that's not intimidating. <laughs> so do you feel like in, when you approach this book, I, I guess you had this personal connection from your family recipes. And then also she had laid out a lot of the kind of basics or innovation of how you approach walk cooking because she was also a restaurant. I mean, she probably wasn't called a chef, although I think we would call her one today because she was the cook at her own restaurant and it was her menu and her food, but she was also, you know, sharing that and, and showing people how to do it. Well, yeah, as far as Joyce Chen's, you know, influence in that sphere goes, it's, again, I think it's it's difficult to say what her ultimate, you know, overall influence was, but, you know, e- even the fact that she invented the, the you know, the, the flat bottom walk and was thinking about how to get, um, you know, make Chinese cooking more accessible um, to home cooks. Uh, yeah, I guess both, both the walk and the idea of bottled stir fry sauces and the idea of, of numbered menus, all these things I think were her um, were, were her attempts at, at making Chinese food more accessible and more understood, um, to home cooks. Um, so certainly in that sense, you know, I, um, in my book, I try and do a lot of the same, um, although, you know, as you said, it's it's not limited to Chinese cuisine, but, um, accessibility and, and, and helping people understand that, you know, not all Chinese food requires these, you know, jet engine, like restaurant style burners and that there's a lot of um, both, you know, restaurant things and home cooking that you can do at home uh, practically and and easily, uh, I think, um, is something that I, I try and do in my book. So we haven't done a lightning round on this show in a while, but I thought because the book is so comprehensive and covers so much ground, <laughs> it seemed like kind of a, a good fit for um, kind of giving people a primer on, on, on what they can expect. So uh, c- can I get you to engage in a quick uh, lightning round? Sure. <laughs> All right, here we go. What's the fastest dish a walk can cook? <laughs> the fastest dish a walk can cook. Um, I would say probably um, eggs. You know, the, the first time I had a, like a really, what I would consider like a truly fried egg um, was in uh, in Thailand where, um, you know, one of the most common dishes you're, you're going to find is stir-fried uh, pork with, with holy basil. Um, and, uh, and that's very often fried with, uh, topped with an egg. And so it's an egg that's, um, sort of, it's sort of a cross between deep fried and shallow fried, but you heat up, um, uh, maybe a half inch or so of oil in the bottom of the wok and you break an egg into it and immediately sort of starts puffing and sizzling and sputtering. Um, and so you get these really lacy egg whites, um, and a liquid yolk that I think, um, you know, adds texture and flavor. And so you, so you get the liquid yolk that, that you can mix into your rice and into your stir fry. Um, and then you get all these little crunchy bits of egg white and it takes about 15 seconds to do. So I would say that's probably... <laughs> Probably the fastest and one of the most delicious things you can make in a walk. What's the thing you can make in a walk that's mo- would most surprise people that you can use to cook a walk? I mean, to cook food. Oh, in a walk. Um, 
<laughs> probably has to be eggs again. <laughs> um, there's this, um, there's a style of scrambled eggs, um, from, uh, from Guangzhou, uh, where you essentially, so you, you preheat the wok, um, and then you lower the heat down and then you sort of slick it with, with, well, traditionally with lard, you can do it with oil as well. Um, but you slick it with lard and then you have these eggs that you've beaten, um, with a little bit of, uh, fish sauce, or you can use soy sauce, um, or just salt, but then you, you essentially, you, you pour it around the outside of the wok, um, and, uh, and, and it's an omelet that essentially cooks only from one side. Um, and so you, you the, the top ends up with this sort of glistening layer of barely, barely set eggs, um, while the bottom is, is the golden brown, the, not the golden brown, but the, the golden yellow color of sort of a, of a traditional French style omelet. So it's, it's almost like a, like a French omelet that's, that's, uh, not rolled, you know? So instead of having the, the liquidy, um, the liquidy shiny center, um, it has a whole layer of it on the top. And then when you take it out of the omelet, you kind of, um, uh, fold it back and forth a little bit so that it makes these kind of golden waves. Uh, and it's, uh, yeah, it's a very unique style of omelet uh, and I think um, extremely delicious. What's the most important step in using a wok to stir-fry vegetables? Oh, cutting them. Um, yeah, I think the, the most important step in any, whether it's vegetables or meat or anything, um, the knife work and, and cutting everything to the right size, preparing everything properly before you start cooking uh, is by far the most important part. Um, uh, you know, it, the, the actual process of stir frying is generally very fast. Um, so you're generally only going to have the heat on for a few minutes while you're cooking in a wok. Um, and the, the part where you have to put a little more work into the recipe is prepping all the ingredients. Um, and so, you know, part, partly because of the process of stir frying and the way you're tossing everything um, and the way the little bits of food sort of fly into the air and roll over each other, they have to be cut to a certain size. Um, part of it's also sort of the way you eat, you know, because you're typically eating with chopsticks. So you don't have a fork and knife at the table. So you're not going to be cutting large pieces of food down to bite size. Everything is bite size to begin with. Um, so yeah, cutting, cutting for both even, even and fast cooking, um, and also for, you know, edibility, uh, that's the part that I think you, you're going to need to put the most work into. This might be the answer to the next, uh, question too. What's the most common mistake people use when cooking with a wok? Um, I would say it's, uh, two things. So yeah, one of them could be being underprepared when you start cooking. Um, so, you know, the, the way I try and head this off in my book is that, um, at the beginning of any recipe where you're going to be cooking quickly and adding, sort of adding ingredients in quick succession, um, I have a list of everything you should have next to you. So it'll say like, you know, for have, have a bowl with your marinated chi for say Kung Pao chicken, um, have a bowl with your marinated chicken, have another bowl with your um, sliced garlic and slivered ginger, have a third bowl with your peanuts and scallions. And, and it's because those things are all going to go into the wok um, at the same. So the peanuts and scallions go in at the same time, the ginger and garlic go in at the same time. So you have them all ready to go in a little bowl. Um, and, 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 you know, and then it'll tell you have a tray on the side for um, after you cook your chicken that you can deposit it to have your sauce mix. And so it, it'll give you a list of all of the seven or eight little things that you should have right within arm's reach when you, when you actually start cooking so that you don't have to realize, Oh no, like now I'm supposed to add the garlic and run back to your cutting board and try and scoop it up. And meanwhile, you know, your, your chicken is burning. You don't want that to happen. Um, so that's, that's part of it. I would say um, really the number one, um, most common mistake people make when stir frying is trying to put too much in the pan at the same time. Um, so, you know, sometimes people do this with Western, Western cuisine as well, where they, where, where you overcrowd the pan. And so instead of 
properly searing, say, a, um, you know, a bunch of chicken breasts, you end up kind of steaming them. And, and then by the time they really start browning, they're already overcooked on the inside. Um, this is even more of a problem um, if you try and do it in wok cooking, because, you know, the, the whole point of stir frying, which should, you know, should really be called toss frying. Um, the whole point of it is that you want moisture to evaporate as rapidly as possible. And that's what the, the action of throwing food in the air actually does. It helps increase uh, convection and, and allows evaporation to occur really quickly um, so that your food is always sort of dry and never really soupy, never stewing in its own juices. Um, and the, the the easiest way to make it so that your food stews in its own juices is to add too much at the same time. Um, and this is this is sort of a, a, a per burner thing. You know, not every burner is made the same. Um, so depending on what kind, on, on the output, of your stovetop, you know, you might be able to get away with putting a half pound of vegetables or meat in the wok at one time properly, um, or you might only be able to put a quarter pound. So it is one of these things where you're going to have to try it a few times. And if you see, you know, when I, when I add this much food, my, it, it starts to bubble and stew at the bottom of the, of the wok instead of really sort of sizzling the whole time. Um, then the next time you cook, um, you know, that you're going to have to cook it in slightly smaller batches. Okay. Last one, your favorite wok dish for just a Wednesday night dinner? Oh, um, Japanese style mapo, mapo tofu. So um, you know, mapo tofu is a dish from Sichuan um, in, in China. Um, but it made it, it's, it made its way over to Japan in the seventies, um, which is where my mom, um, sort of became familiar with it. And, um, and, and over the years it sort of became, you know, J Japanified. So the flavors changed. So while the, the Sichuan original, um, which I also love, you know, one of my favorite dishes in the world, the Sichuan original is it, this dish where, um, it's, it's ground beef and soft tofu that's flavored with uh, Sichuan peppercorn. So it gives you that sort of numbing, well, it has like a sort of lemony scent, but it gives you that numbing tongue, tongue sensation. Um, lots of chilies uh, and then uh, dobanjang, which is a fermented uh, broad bean and chili paste. Um, so the, the, the Sichuan version has this, what's called a mala flavor profile. So numbing hot flavor profile, whereas the Japanese one, typically it's there. So there's no Sichuan peppercorn, so it doesn't have any of the numbingness. Um, and usually it's not very spicy either, either. And it has more of a sort of savory, lightly sweet and savory flavor profile, um, flavored with, uh, mirin, you know, sweet, sweet rice, rice wine, uh, soy sauce, and then some, sometimes miso. Um, my mom made it with just ground beef, um, tofu, uh, mirin, sake, and soy sauce. Um, and that's how I make it at home. Um, a little, you know, a little bit of garlic, ginger, scallions, things like that. Um, that's how I make it at home. Uh, and it's a dish that I grew up eating. It was my favorite dish growing up. Um, and it's now sort of one of my daughter's favorite. It's, it's, it's a dish that, you know, I, I always have tofu at home. Um, and, and I typically will have some ground, ground meat in the freezer, uh, always have garlic, ginger, and scallions. So it's one of these things where if I don't have anything else in the, in the kitchen, I know that I can put this together and I know that my, daughter is going to eat it and love it. Um, and, and it takes all of, you know, 10 minutes to do start to finish, including the time it takes to, you know, chop the vegetables. Um, so it's, it's a, it's a very, very easy weeknight dish for me. And that recipe's in the book. Oh yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. In, in the book, actually, there's both the Sichuan version and my mom's virgin version. Oh yeah. Help everyone can Karen, compare and contrast and do their own kicks illustrated comparison and then then write you a, <laughs> write you a comment. All right, All right. After the break, we're going to hear Kenji's Julia moment. Get in touch. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf. Let us know what you think about today's show. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really... You just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. 
no, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she might have inspired them in their career. Okay, Kenji, what's your Julia moment? <laughs> um, so I'm pretty sure that the audio we just listened to was from is from her omelet episode. Is that right? Uh, it's from, I think it's actually from the potato pancake episode, but it often gets misconstrued (laughs) because it doesn't really look like, it looks like an omelet. (laughs) Well, so, so I was going to say that, um, I mean, my Julia, and and I know I've talked a lot about eggs at this point now in this episode, but, um, her, her omelet episode, you know, it's the same with my, like my Jacques Pepin moment would also be his omelet, his omelet episode, but, um, egg, you know, so her omelet episode, um, where she's cooking, um, a French style omelet on a nonstick pan on a, on an electric coil stove at home. Um, I, you know, I remember watching that when I was a kid and watching, watching, um, public television. But I think the, the, the thing that struck, that, that struck me most about it was how, <laughs> how sort of. And, and this is going to sound, I, I mean this as a compliment, like how sort of sloppy it was, you know, mm-hmm. and how, and like how you could tell like, oh, this is, she's just a woman. She's a normal person cooking in, in, in her kitchen and explaining to me how to do this thing. Um, and you could see, you know, you could almost see that she was a little bit um, uh, nervous about it while she was cooking it. Um, and, and I thought that, so that sort of gave, that really gave me actually actual, actual confidence Um to go and you know so I mean omelets were one of the were were one of the first things I learned how to cook and I learned it by watching Julia watching Jacques Pepin um, you know I think I'll probably also watch the the Jeff Smith episode you know the the frugal gourmet episode of omelets um, but but omelets were one of the first things I cooked um, they are one of the things that um, you know eggs are the, the the first recipe I wrote for my food lab column was about eggs the first recipe I wrote for my New York Times column was about eggs um, and I find that you know eggs. From a both from a technique point and an accessibility point, um, are one of these subjects that are most fascinating to write about because you know it's it's one of these ingredients where the smallest thing can make a can make a difference in the final outcome, um, and you can get a huge variety of textures um, just by by the different ways you can cook it. Um, but it's also something that everybody has access to, and it's inexpensive. It's cheap to experiment on. Um, it's inexpensive to learn. It's quick um, and. Uh, you know, and and so I think show, showing an egg recipe and demonstrating an egg recipe, um, even be, because it's so technical, um, it's very easy to sort of mess up eggs and not have them come out perfectly, right? Um, but on the other hand, it's also um, it's it's something where even if it doesn't come out perfectly, it's it's still breakfast. It's still going to be delicious. Um, and I think you know that idea that that you can approach perfection and you can get better and better and better at your technique. Um, but even, you know, even, even seasoned professionals, um, even educators are going to make the, these mistakes and it's totally okay to make those mistakes. Um, I think that really comes through, um, in, uh, Julia's, um, you know, Julia's style and Julia, Julia's teaching. Um, and it's something that I try and always remember, like it's, it's okay to make a mistake and you should encourage people to make mistakes because if you're not making mistakes, it means you're, you're, you know, you're not, you're not pushing yourself hard enough. You're not trying, you're not trying new things. Um, and it's, it's, um, yeah, the idea, the idea of, of it being okay to be nervous or it being okay to that things don't come out perfectly. Um, I think is, is probably the most empowering thing I know, um, in the kitchen. 
Well, I'm smiling really broadly because we, uh, about to debut is the first time Julia or the foundation has been involved with a Food Network project. And there's a new show uh, that's just come out called the Julia Child Challenge, uh, which is where home cooks compete in a replica of Julia's kitchen uh, for the prize, which is a three-month course at the Cordon Bleu in Paris. And one of the challenges is indeed to make a French omelet, which I was like, is really (laughs) that going to be hard? And um, Sure enough, um, as folks will see, it, it it touches on every point you just made. So uh, <laughs> you, you'll you'll have to not miss that one because because uh, I think uh, it will uh, resonate and amuse. <laughs> oh, and from from what I remember, I think she also uses chopsticks to spread butter and to to beat eggs in that recipe, which I think are the best tool for making an omelet as well. Yeah, I know. And of course, Julia did uh, live in Shanghai for a very short period of time. And then certainly in in what was then uh, Ceylon, now Sri Lanka, where kind of similar kind of cultural overlap would exist. So maybe that's where she she picked that up. And and I believe you're correct that she did know Joyce Chen and used to, um, you know, uh, maybe not socialize with her, but go to the restaurant and have chats. And they were they were certainly acquainted. So Kenji, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. And thanks, everyone, for joining us. For more from Kenji, you can find him on Instagram at Kenji Lopezalt, and he links to his YouTube channel on KenjiLopezalt.com. His new cookbook is The Walk, Recipes and Techniques. It's out now from W.W. Norton. Ask or search for it at your favorite bookseller. As I said, the Julia Child Challenge is now airing on Food Network, Mondays at 9 p.m. Eastern and Pacific, 8 a.m. Central and Mountain, or you can stream it on Discovery+. Plus. Do check it out. It's a, a real pleasure and a joy in this moment in time. Make sure you're following us. It's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram, at Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. And please follow at SB Culinary Experience on Instagram for the latest on the 2022 Taste of Santa Barbara. Register now to join us to eat and drink our way across Santa Barbara County, May 16th to 22nd. Go to sbce.events. And please remember to rate the show and leave us a review if you haven't already. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer at the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. 
Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.